Thank you, Carrie Lynn, for reading God's Word for us this morning. Uh, Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. It's great to see each one of you. Welcome. Um, So glad to have you uh, here celebrating, worshiping with us uh, this morning. Um, If you are a kid who's with us this morning, and if you maybe picked up one of these, it's called the Kid Connect. We love having kids, elementary school kids, uh, worship with us in our services. And so if you have one of these, you can fill this out. And then if you fill it out, you can take it downstairs to um, our director of children's ministry, Mr. Dave, and he has a prize for you. So if you want to follow along in the sermon with one of these, we'd love well, if you do. If you haven't gotten one, there's one in the back too. So feel free, even mom and dad, to grab one of these uh, if you would like. So let's, uh, before we jump in um, to this passage of scripture, let's go ahead and pray and ask God for his help this morning uh, to understand his word. Um, we know that we need uh, his help Um, in this. So uh, pray with me, if you will. Father in heaven, uh, we are so thankful. um, As as we say every week, we're so thankful for the gift of your word, and we never want to take it for granted. And I know I'm always in danger of of taking it for granted. Um, But I'm so thankful that you have given us your word, that you've given us uh, faithful translations, um, that you've given us uh, scholars to help us understand, that you've given us your church family to help us understand it. And so we pray now as we study Um, as we look at this book together, that your spirit would ultimately be at work um, guiding us into truth, helping us to understand um, what you have revealed uh, to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, is there anything worse uh, than being lied to? I mean, we hate it, don't we? When you you find out that someone has lied to you, uh, it's the worst. And and even no matter whether the lie was big or small, There's always a certain level of lost trust, a a sense of betrayal that we feel when we find out that someone has lied to us, that they've been been less than truthful with us. So we hate being lied to, uh, at least by other people, right? But when it comes to what we say to ourselves, that's a little bit of a different story, isn't it? Because if we're able to pause and be honest with ourselves for a moment, isn't there part of us that we would say really likes to be lied to? If the lie will get us what we want, if, if the lie will get us what we think that we want. Well, for example, let me give you an example of this. A few months back, Rachel and I decided we needed to upgrade one of our cars. We had this baby on the way. We're like, okay, we need to upgrade one of our cars. And, and so we started this car searching process. And, and we learned a really valuable lesson uh, in, in car searching process. I just want to share it with you this morning. Um, this is it. Our, our valuable lesson is that do not test drive a car that you cannot afford. Uh, do not test drive a car that you cannot afford. Because we've been thinking about, well, we need to get an SUV, something a little bigger. And so one day on a whim, we were having lunch uh, down at Blue Koi here. And we, I just said, why don't we go test drive some? You know, we didn't have a plan in mind. We didn't have a budget in mind. Well, let's just go test drive some new cars. And I'm telling you, it wasn't, you know, the car was barely off of the lot on the test drive uh, before I was beginning to um, listen to and believe the lies that I only not just needed a newer car, but I needed a brand new car, um, that 0% financing on a more expensive new car was really a better deal than 1.9% financing on a, on a much less expensive used car, uh, that the, the infant child we were about to have really needed a roomy back seat. I mean, she, I mean, she is a tall baby already, but, but really, I mean, you know, she's still going to be a few years before she needs leg room. Um, now, in the end, uh, we did come to our senses, and, and we didn't buy this car that there's no way that we could really afford. 
But there were a couple weeks in there where we really wanted to believe the lies. Maybe we can, if we cut out here and we get the long term long enough, maybe we can make this work. So we, we hate being lied to unless the lies affirm what we want, right? <laughs> then we don't mind so much. Demosthenes, who is a Greek philosopher who lived about 400 years before Christ, wrote, Nothing is so easy as to deceive oneself. Nothing is so easy as to deceive oneself for what we wish we readily believe. For what we wish we readily believe. Um, Chip and Dan Heath, you may be familiar with them. They wrote Made to Stick and a number of other books. Their most recent book is called Decisive. And and they point out in their research that even our attempts to be objective uh, in decision-making often often fails. They said when you come to making a decision about a house or a car or where to go to school, we often go to the the pro-con list, right? But they said really pro-con lists are a terrible way of making decisions because we just sort of bake in our bias into the the list. Chip says you can sit at home with your pro-con list and come up with a beautiful justification for whatever you wanted to do in the first place. You see, the the Heaths say that part of being a good decision maker is actually knowing when not to trust yourself. It's actually knowing knowing when not to trust yourself. You see, we aren't trustworthy because we actually like being lied to. If the lie will get us what we want. And this is true in our decisions about a new car as well as, I mean, I feel like in dieting and exercise, I mean, no other place do we love lying to ourselves more than in in diet and exercise, I think. And this reality is perhaps most potently true, though, in our relationship to God and his word, what, what people often refer to as our spiritual lives. Here we are so quick, we are so willing to believe lies. But why is this? Why are we so inclined in this realm, this, this spiritual life that we talk about? Why are we so quick to believe lies here? Well, well, the Bible says the trouble is with what the Bible calls our heart. With what the Bible calls our heart. Now, now when we think of the heart, we often think of our emotions, right? Or our feelings. Um, but when the Bible uses the language of heart, it actually, it kind of inclu- it moves it up a little bit. So we think of heart, we kind of think right here, kind of our emotions, our, our gut, our feelings, But when the Bible uses the language of heart, it really kind of goes up to here. It includes our head, our our commitments, our beliefs, our reason, our desires. The biblical language refers to all of those things. The heart is our place of deepest commitment and trust and hopes. And from those commitments flow our emotions, our thoughts, our actions. And so as we look at this passage this morning in the book of Hebrews, the author gives us a stark warning. The author says this, He says, sin is a liar, and we believe the lies. He says, sin is a liar, and we believe the lies. The the author reminds us, again, if you've been with us for a few weeks, we're studying this book, the Hebrews, and, and he's writing to this group of people who are in danger of drifting away from Christ. That's kind of the big framework over which this letter is being written to. He's written, writing to people who are in danger of drifting away from Jesus. They, they believe, but now life is getting difficult, and they're in danger of drifting away. And what he's reminding them in this passage is that drifting always begins first in the heart, when your heart starts to believe the lies that sin is telling The writer warns us that if we don't remember how glorious Jesus is and how deceitful sin is, our hearts will become hard and unbelieving, eventually leading us away from life and hope, eventually away from God himself. 
So to avoid being able to be, to avoid being taken in by sin and its lies, we must remind ourselves of three things. Remind ourselves and one another of three things. First of all is how deceitful sin is. Second, how devastating unbelief is. And then lastly, how glorious the truth is. So, so if we want to avoid being taken in by, by sin's lies, if we want to escape them, we have to remember how, how deceitful sin is, first and foremost, how devastating unbelief is, and then lastly, how glorious the truth is. So first we must remind one another of how deceitful sin is. And now when we read our, our text, this, I mean, Carrie Lynn read a, a big chunk for us, and, and there's a lot there. So sometimes it's easier to kind of start at a key verse to begin to kind of guide our, our conversation. And I want to start in verse 12, because verses 12 through 14 are absolutely central to understanding this passage. So if you have a Bible on your phone, again, I've mentioned this before, I love the YouVersion Bible app. So if you have it on your phone or grab one of the Pew Bibles, I'd love to show you these, these verses. So if you can turn to chapter 3. Verse 12 um, in your Bible. Again, it's on page 1002 in the Pew Bibles. Um, This is what the author of the Hebrews says. He says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Then he says, But exhort, encourage is the language, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Did you notice that phrase in there? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is a liar. It always has been. It always has been. It always will be. But the question is, how does sin deceive us? What are the lies that sin tells us? Well, if you take a look up a few verses to verse 7, we begin to get a hint, a a clue. And here, beginning in verse 7, the author quotes an Old Testament passage, Psalm 95, which we actually read the first part of Psalm 95 earlier in our service. But but we stopped. We we left off right where the author picks up in this text where he's quoting. And if you notice, too, in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... It's just this quick little remark from the author. He says that even though a human author, King David, wrote these words, that the author of the Hebrews is in a subtle way saying when this book speaks, God speaks. He says the Holy Spirit says. And what what does he quote? So the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Then I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay. So, Bill, where's the hint? Where's the clue? How does this play into it? Why is the author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 95? That's cool. But what does this have to do with anything? Um, why does he quote it? And, and what is this rebellion, this day of testing in the wilderness? What's happening here? Well, Psalm 95 actually refers back to two other places in the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 14, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 17, and Numbers chapter 14. And if you're following along with our open here Bible reading plan, um, you actually read those uh, chapters this week. Um, there's new bookmarks in the back, by the way, for February out there, if you want to pick one of those up. 
But in these chapters, God's people have just been rescued from Egypt. So if you've seen the Disney film, The, the, the uh, Prince of Egypt, or the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments, you kind of get the general kind of uh, idea of the story. God has just dramatically and unmistakably led his people out of Egypt. They've been rescued from slavery. They've been delivered. He's leading them into the promised land. This is what they've longed for and, and hoped for for generations. But in Exodus 17, and then again in, in Numbers 14, same story, they're in the wilderness, and they start running out of food, they start running out of water, and they start to whine, they start to complain, and they want to go back to Egypt. You see, they start to believe the lies. They kind of develop this case of selective memory. They, they talk about, oh, back in, back in Egypt we had the pots full of meat and the leeks and the good food and we had beds and shelter. And, you know, there was, of course, kind of this predictability and routine. I mean, it kind of comes with being a slave, but this life of, of routine, they knew what was coming next. But it's a lie, right? I mean, their memory is so selective at this point. Because they've forgotten about the slavery, the beatings, the whips. I mean, the, the genocide of their children. I mean, remember if you know the Exodus story, they were literally throwing their, the, their kids into the Nile River to kill them. I mean, they, they, somehow they blocked all of that stuff out. And they believed the lie that what we had back in Egypt was better. Better than what God has for us now. They rebelled. They put God to the test. And you see, our hearts always begin to play tricks on us in the wilderness. In the time when we come to faith, when we see faith completed, in the time between, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, we're in that place of the wilderness, when we're in the time sort of in between what God has promised to us and the fulfillment of that promise, man, our hearts begin to play tricks on us. We're so susceptible to lies. This is the, the point that the, uh, the author is making to the, the Hebrews uh, that he's writing to. You have s- seen these promises of Jesus, but now things are getting hard and you're beginning to drift away. And he's saying, don't be like your ancestors. Don't be like what happened to them. So they start believing the lie and they actually start begging to be slaves again. That's what they're asking. We, we would rather go back and be slaves again. The lies kept in. We were better off before. God's just not worth it. If he loved us, if he were really with us, he'd treat us better than this. This actually reminds me of the very first lie, the very first temptation back in the Garden of Eden. And I love how author Sally Lloyd-Jones, and she has this great children's Bible. Parents, if you have kids, even if you don't have kids, you should get this book. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And this is how Sally Lowe Jones describes the temptation in the garden. I just want to read this for you. She says, As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered up silently to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why doesn't he let you eat that nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like a poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. And suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the servant whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's all, and you will be happier than you could ever dream. And Eve picked up the fruit and ate some, and Adam ate some too, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave 
it would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. You see, on the surface, sin's lies come in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different trappings. But if you dig down into the lie, every time it comes back to that fundamental lie that God doesn't really love me, that he doesn't really want what's best for me. If God really loved me, if he really knew what was best for me, he'd he'd be okay with with this relationship I'm in. We love each other. If he really knew how tight things were financially, he wouldn't expect me to be generous. If he really cared, he'd let me out of this lousy marriage. If he just knew how I felt. You see, in the wilderness of our lives, these lies are so enticing. They seem like oases in the wilderness. They seem like these places of refuge and rest. But in the end, they are nothing more than mirages that leave us disappointed, leave us empty and despairing. So how can we see these mirages for what they are? How can we begin to to name them, to know what they are? What do the lies sound like? Can you recognize them for what they are? Do you recognize sin's voice? Are you able to hear the lies and tell yourself, that's a lie? Lies like, I just made a list this week of all the things that I, that I hear in my mind. Lies like, you can't live without it. Or, it's not a big deal. Or, well, I'm not as bad as them. Or, just a little bit more. Or, or you deserve it. Or, you need it. Or, you'll be happier with it. Or, or there's no way that you can be happy without it. <laughs> or we say things like this, right? Just a little bit longer. Or just one last time. Or when I get older, then I'll deal with it. Or now that I'm older, I deserve a little bit of a rest. I don't have to fight that temptation anymore. Or I'm not hurting anyone, or I'm good enough already, or I'll never be good enough, so why bother? You see, every one of these is a lie. (laughs) Every one of them is a lie that that I believed, if not yesterday, last week, or last year, or will believe tomorrow. And you see, the first step to not being taken in by these lies is to recognize them for what they are, lies, and call them that, name them as that. And there are times when, when these kind of thoughts come into my mind and I actually have to almost say to myself out loud, Bill, that is a lie. <laughs> you know it's a lie. You, you want to believe it's true. But you know that in the end, it's only going to betray you like it has every other time. Which brings us to our next point. How devastating unbelief is. Because you see, when you believe the lie of sin long enough, when we get into that pattern of believing long enough and choosing to believe the lie, the thing that's happening there is we're not just choosing to believe the lie. It's kind of like in physics, there's the opposite and equal reaction, right? When you believe the lie, you're also disbelieving God. And when we disbelieve God repeatedly, our hearts, remember that's that place of deepest commitment, our trust, our hopes, where they reside, our hearts begin to harden and they begin to shut God out. 
Again, this is what the authors want. Look back at, at verse 8 again. He says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And this is the this hardening of heart. This is the devastating consequence of unbelief that the author is warning us against. Again, read in verse 12, he says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You see, if we disbelieve, and that word for unbelief or disbelief, it's actually the Greek word apostia. It's where we get our word apostasy from. If you disbelieve God long enough, you will eventually fall away from the living God, the only source of life in the universe. And falling away from the living God, it is, it's falling into death. And this is the author's point when he writes in verses 15 uh, through 17 at the end. He's just driving this home. He says, um, starting in verse 15, he says, Today, again, he quotes Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt by Mo- led by Moses? He's saying, look, they saw incredible, miraculous wonders, and yet they rebelled. <laughs> And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? See, it leads to death. And to whom did he swear that they will not enter his rest, but to those who are disobedient, so that we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief? You see, the progression for the people in the Exodus generation was that they believed a lie, and they disbelieved God, and then they were cut off from God and from his rest. We're going to say a lot more about that next week. You see, the more you disbelieve, the more you disobey, the harder it becomes to believe the truth. And for example, we all know that, uh, we've all known of, of kids or heard stories of kids right, who grow up in the church, they grow up in, in faith, and then they, they go off to college and they, they begin to lose their faith in college. And this happens for lots of reasons. I mean, there's a myriad of reasons why this can happen. But I, I heard a story once of a young adult pastor who, when he would have college students come back home um, from their first semester at college or their first year at college, and they'd be home for, for the summer, and they'd begin talking to him about their, their struggles with faith, and they'd start talking about maybe they'd taken a religion uh, class or a philosophy class, and you know, he would listen. And again, this is bold. I don't know if I would ever do this, but this guy had, had guts. If he knew the person well enough, he would do this. He would ask. He'd listen and listen to what they're saying, and, and then he would just stop and look at them and say, so who are you sleeping with? And it, and it seems like a leap, doesn't it? I mean, wait, this is not... But his point was that almost, and almost to a perfect tee, they would, they would, how did you know? Or, well, yeah, this is what I've been... You see, when we begin to disbelieve, when we make choices to disobey God... Our hearts begin to be hardened, and faith gets squeezed out. It's not often, Lewis said to us in the very beginning, we we talked about Lewis, he says, how many people are actually convinced by intellectual arguments that Christianity isn't true? He says, very rarely, mostly we just drift away. And and it's not just kids going off to college. And and actually, I'm going to just pause here and say too, students, as you head off to college, as you go away to school, uh, no matter how many doubts you face, it's good, and it's going to be difficult, but no matter how many doubts you face, no matter what mistakes that you make when you're there at school, we are your church family, and you can always come home to this place. You can always come home to this place. You can always ask us the tough questions, and as your church family, we will never reject you.
So, so just in light of that story, hear, hear that also. We're your church family. You can always come home to this place. But, but it's true for all of us. The more we believe the lies, the more that we continually disobey, the harder and harder our hearts become and the more difficult it becomes for us to really sustain faith. Usually it isn't an intellectual argument. I mean, it can be, but often it, that isn't the decisive thing. Just like we can't expect to ignore our diet and exercise and expect to live a healthy life, we can't continue to ignore the living God and expect to live life as it was designed to be lived. And hardness of heart that is left unchecked is always terminal. But the good news is that it can be reversed. It doesn't have to be fatal. So how? You see, we escape the lies and the hardening by remembering how glorious the truth is. We didn't read this part earlier, but look back up at verses 1 through 6. Look at what he says. He says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken about later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence, our confidence in boasting and our hope. This passage just reveals a sliver. I mean, the Bible is always talking about the glory of Jesus. This passage reveals just a sliver of the glorious truth about who Jesus is and about who we are if we place our trust in him and, and hold fast our confidence and our hope in him. So, so what is this, uh, those, those few slivers of truth that we see here in this text? Well, first, it tells us something true about us. If we are in Christ, it says, look, it calls us holy. It says you are holy. It says you are pure. You are, when we watched this video last week, you are unstained. You are without blemish. And that you have been called with a heavenly calling, that we are being called into a life with Jesus himself, being made like him, being changed ever more into what he has always intended us to be. And so when sin says, why even try to resist? You're so weak. You can never change. You've never been able to change. Say in reply, you are wrong. My God calls me holy. He's making me holy. I'm called to live with him forever. That's who I am. Second, this text tells us, again, just a few slivers, but tells us how glorious Jesus is. Jesus is the one who was sent to rescue us. He is the one who makes it possible for our sins, even the sins of, of disbelief, if, if we turn to him to be forgiven. That's what it means for him to be apostle. It means the sent one, the one who was sent, the high priest, the one who intercedes and makes it possible for us to be forgiven. You see, Jesus, unlike sin, is faithful. He never lies. He always tells the truth. He always does what he promises. He will never let you down. He will never abandon you. You see, every promise that sin makes 
is a counterfeit promise to something that is provided more fully and more completely in Jesus. The writer G.K. Chesterton said, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. You see, every sin promises something that only Jesus can truly give. And so I want to say to you this morning, stop tolerating the lies. Stop tolerating the lies that sin is telling you. Sin has betrayed you for too long. He's used you for too long. Sin is a liar, and despite what he might say, he's never going to stop lying. He's never going to change. He's the one who's never going to change. He will never stop lying to you. It will never, ever give you what it promises. It will only take, it will only steal, it will only destroy. In the end, it will only ever kill you. You see, sin is a masterful liar, an incomparable liar. But it is no match for the glorious truth of the gospel. So how do we go about believing the truth? What does it look like? Just a few things here as we close. First, fix your thoughts on Jesus. This is what the author commands us to do in verse 1 when he says, consider Jesus. The, the word there that's translated consider literally means to think carefully about with the, kind of the implication that you can see through trickery or deception. And, and this is the goal of Bible reading and prayer. The reason that we have something like open here where you can follow along and read the Bible every day, it's, it's not so that you, God will be impressed with you, Right? Jesus has already done everything for you. God is already pleased with you, as pleased as he can be with you in in Jesus. It's not to make yourself feel good. It's not to impress your friends. The reason that we want to read God's word every day, that we want to pray, is so that we can fix our thoughts continually on him. Uh, That we can bask in him who is worthy of more glory than Moses, so that we'll be able to see through the lies. Which brings us to the second point. We always have to look for the lie. Always be looking for the lie. That word, uh, again, in verse 12, it's, it's translated take care. It's actually, that's really kind of weak. It's this take care. But the idea is it's a word of warning. Look out. Watch out. That's, that's probably a better translation. So always be on the lookout for the lie. You see, when you know that sin is a liar, then you can, it's the first step to being free of it because you can name it. <laughs> so ask yourself, when, when I'm being tempted what lie is sin telling me? What promise is it making that it can't keep? And and let me tell you, sin is subtle, and it's so crafty. And so finding the lie isn't always easy. But when you're able to identify and name the lie that sin is telling you, then you're actually then able to apply the specific truth of the gospel and say, this is how Jesus is better than, than the lie that's being promised. Finally, encourage one another daily. You probably get tired of hearing me say this on some way, but we cannot do this alone. We cannot do this alone. We need one another. And this is why the author tells us in verse 13, he says to encourage one another. Actually, he says daily. Encourage one another daily. See, we, we need one another, not just once a week on Sunday morning, but every day. We need to be in relationship with people who on a daily basis are, are able to tie us to the mast. When, when sin's siren call is threatening to pull us off course and crash us into the rocks of unbelief, we need people who are willing to tie us to the mast and fill our ears with wax so we won't listen to the siren call of sin. Are we willing to encourage people? In, are you willing to encourage people in your life in that way? Are you willing to risk helping someone else 
name the lies. And actually, probably more importantly, are you willing to actually have someone else name the lies that you're believing? And this is why we talk about so much about smaller groups of people, about community groups. You have to be in, in relationship with people um, outside of, a, of just the Sunday morning hour together to be able to do this work of, of encouraging one another on a daily basis. See, we need constant reminders of the truth of the gospel, uh, which is why every week that we, we not only open the Bible and proclaim God's word, we also celebrate the truth of the gospel in communion, and we, in a way that we can taste and touch and see. You see, in receiving communion, we are reminded tangibly, tangibly tactily of the good news of the gospel. In receiving prayer, which we also have during communion, we are enfolded into a community that loves us and is willing to help us to fight to believe the truth. And so this morning, as we close our time in the Word, we come to the Lord's table. And we celebrate communion here every week at the Brookside campus as that tangible reminder of the gospel. 